Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. The microbiome refers to the community of microorganisms living inside a host. But why are they there? What benefits can these microbes provide to their hosts? And could they allow their hosts to colonise novel niches? I'm Alex Rodway, a biology master's student at Jesus College. To find the answers to these questions, I will be interviewing Dr. Sarah Knowles, Associate Professor of Ecosystem Biology, whose research focuses on the mammalian microbiome. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on Oxpods. It's a pleasure. Just to start with, when we talk about the microbiome and hosts and symbionts, what, what do these terms refer to? Yeah, so a symbiont is really an organism that lives in a kind of intimate, close-knit relationship with another organism. So two species, really, that uh, live closely together. Um, It doesn't mean they're necessarily cooperating with one another. It could be that that's a negative interaction. So a pathogen would also be a symbiont. Um, But you can also have symbionts that, uh, yeah, do good things for each other, like uh, help one another with something or other so would that be a mutualistic relationship exactly yeah so a mutualistic relationship would then be a relationship where both parties benefit from that association um so something like a a bee and a pollinator that's a mutualistic relationship right yeah and do the symbionts and their hosts always rely on each other when they form these relationships no so they don't always rely on one another and um you know obviously as i said sometimes symbiotic relationships are actually pathogenic and even if you look back at um where did mutual, mutualistic relationships between hosts and symbionts come from? Um, they often evolved from pathogens. So a symbiont now, if you look back at the evolutionary tree of life, where it's come from, it will have evolved from a pathogenic part of that tree of life. So they can move from being nice to being nasty, um, depending on the context and also throughout the course of evolution. Um, yeah, okay. I don't think I said what a host was, but a host, essentially, yeah, if you have a host and a symbiont, that's just a symbiotic relationship where one species is much bigger than the other and kind of houses the other one. So the host is the one who houses and the symbiont is the one who lives in or on that host. Right. Yeah. So are there some species in which the host and symbiont, when they have a mutualistic symbiotic relationship, yeah. where they're completely dependent on each other, where they couldn't live without the other one? Yeah, definitely. So there's lots of examples like that, particularly in insects. So if you look, for example, at aphids, there's loads of species of aphids and they all feed on sap, which has basically got no nutrients whatsoever. And in order to feed on that, they absolutely have to have bacterial symbionts that um, provide essential nutrients that sap doesn't have, like amino acids and things. Um, Are those symbionts called Buchnera? Is that the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah Buchnera is the bacterial symbiont of aphids that um, provides amino acids for those aphids. Okay, so they synthesise new molecules um, for their hosts. What other benefits can hosts gain from their bacterial symbionts? Yeah, so the main the main ones we see tend to fall into two big camps. So you see nutritional benefits, like that the symbiont provides nutrients for the host or key um, biomolecules that the host doesn't have, so vitamins, amino acids, things like that. Um, or the symbionts help the host break down some kind of nutrient that is very abundant, but the host doesn't have the enzymes to do themselves. Um, but they also often have roles in uh, defense against pathogens. So we see, for example, that if you if you were to take a course of antibiotics, um, you'd be much more susceptible to pathogenic infection. And the reason for that is that you're wiping out your, your natural gut flora, which is protecting you from those pathogens. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 
So is it just that these um, microbiomes can provide defense against pathogens or can they also provide defense against predation? Um, yeah, so it's interesting you should ask that. We have fewer examples of protection against predation, but there is one really cool um, um, area of science where they've been looking at this Hawaiian bobtail squid, which is this really cute little squid that lives in the shallow waters um, off Hawaii. And that actually uses symbiotic microbes to protect itself against predation, at least it's thought to be against predation. And it uses bacteria that it takes into the body, this one specific species of Vibrio, which is very common in seawater, to bioluminesce, in other words, to glow. And what that does is it provides this effect called counter-illumination, where instead of making a shadow on the seafloor that predators could potentially see, um, the squid is kind of made invisible to those predators by the glow of this bacterium. So it's one of the yeah, it's one of the coolest examples of symbiosis, I think. So it's kind of a form of camouflage then. Exactly, yeah, it's camouflage. So given that uh, microbes can provide all these benefits to their hosts, why why wouldn't the host just evolve the genes to provide the benefits themselves? That's a great question. So um, I guess you could imagine in some cases you might want to do things yourself, right? Because um, it might be more, you might get all the benefit from doing that. But some things are just chores, you know that. Um, you don't want to do everything. And, and some things are also hard to evolve. So somebody else might be able to do something much better than you. And it's the same with hosts and symbionts. So hosts, I guess, are often thought to be exploiting bacterial symbionts that can do something they can do better. Microbes are, you know, amazingly diverse in what they can what they can do. They have, you know, you could you could house microbes with lots of different genomes and lots of different genes um, that can do much more than your genome could ever do. So if we look at humans, for example, you have um, about 20,000 genes in your genome. If you look at how your, the bacteria in your body, they will make up many, 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 many times more genetic material than that. And, and within those genomes, there's lots of capacity to do different things. So people often say, you know, 99% of your genomic potential lies in your microbes. And they also you know, they can respond very quickly to different environmental conditions. They're incredibly versatile. They can share genes with each other um, horizontally through what we call horizontal gene transfer. So that's where bacteria will deliberately or, or accidentally pass their own genes onto other bacteria without having to reproduce. Right? Yeah, so they can, exactly, they can spread DNA from one cell to another without having to um, divide and they obviously do divide very very quickly so you can expand a pool of microbes doing a particular function very rapidly so they're incredibly versatile and dynamic and I, I, I like to think of them as well as you know with all this versatility they they could be perceived of as a sort of sensor array for the host you know they're detecting what's going on in the environment and responding you know very quickly um, and that's useful to a host because we can't, we might not have all those receptors to know what's going on in our environment. Um, we might arrive in a new environment and if it was a vertebrate, in order to evolve an adaptation to that environment would take us years and years and years and years and years. Microbes might already be able to do it, so why not use them? Okay, so given that these microbes are potentially so beneficial to hosts, do hosts have much control in terms of which microbes they acquire? Yeah, so they, they, they certainly can do. It varies a lot across different systems how much host control there's, there is. So in some cases, uh, like the squid example that we talked about, where you've got this one bacterium that does a very specific function of glowing within the host to give it camouflage, 
is actually exquisite control by the host over which microbes make it in to their, they have this light organ um, within the body cavity. So in that case, it's extremely tightly controlled. And there's also similar things going on in plants, for example, in legumes, pea-type plants. Um, they take in bacteria that can fix nitrogen, and there's really tight host control over which microbes can form these nodules on the roots. So fixing this. nitrogen is taking atmospheric nitrogen and forming nitrates, right, which can be used for proteins and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so plants house bacteria in, some plants house bacteria in nodules in their roots that can do that. Um, oh, wow. But there's very specific molecular interactions between the root and microbes in the soil that mean only certain bacteria that can fix are able to do that. And then even once they get into the root nodules, the, the host, the plant, is actually policing how well they're doing at providing that service. And if they don't do well enough, that nodule is cut off killed so it's quite an died. extreme selection pressure the, the plant yeah. is deciding which bacteria it wants yeah and <laughs> it literally will have you know um they've done experiments where you can block the microbes um from being able to cooperate and provide this this service to the host and the host very rapidly responds and cuts those nodules off um so there's brutal. incredibly yeah yeah brutal yeah it's incredibly tight control in that in that case well because otherwise you can imagine there's very strong selection on the host to be choosy because otherwise you're, they are actually, to some extent, feeding those microbes and otherwise you're just wasting resources on these microbes that aren't, aren't giving back um, as they should be. So it seems that uh, leguminous plants have a high level of control over their microbiomes. Are there some examples where maybe the host has less control? Yeah, so I would say the human microbiome is a classic example of where it's not obvious that we have, you know, we certainly don't have very tight host control because our microbiome shifts with every meal that we eat. Um, so we, um, we, there's evidence that we have some control. Uh, so if you look at kind of the, the immune system and um, people have done studies with mice, for example, that have mutations in the immune system, they have a different microbiome and there is evidence from Simpler organisms as well, not just vertebrates, but say hydra, um, these little uh, sea creatures, that the immune genes they have are able to kind of select which microbes they retain. Um, so it's likely that the immune system has partly evolved to select these microbes, but it's in a very loose way. And we probably also control maybe the, um, the level of oxygen in certain mucosal surfaces, and um, the level of nutrients, but it's much looser. These communities are more like a marauding mass of, you know, mostly uncontrollable microbes that are just competing with one another and doing their own thing. And we have them. There's this nice expression that that's been used before um, by Kevin Foster, which is that they're almost like an ecosystem on a leash. So the leash is the host control, and we have some, I don't know. A great dane that's not been trained very well on a leash like and we're kind of yeah trying to control it but not very tightly so it seems pretty clear that these microbes can really help hosts adapt to new environments colonize new niches uh, are there are there examples of where the host would be completely unable to live in the environment in which they do without their microbiomes yeah, I mean, the, I guess the best example of that is all the, the deep sea ecosystems that have been discovered lately. So I guess, you know, people always thought the 
the, the ocean floor would be completely dead. But then when they got down there, they found it absolutely teeming with life. And those entire ecosystems are completely built on symbiotic microbes. So you've got these uh, giant tube worms, for example, that you find clustered around these hydrothermic vents on the bottom of the sea. Um, which they don't actually have a digestive system. They have no ability to kind of eat themselves, but they have this big body cavity that's filled with symbiotic bacteria that are able to take the um, hydrogen sulfide gas that comes out of these black smokers and convert it into carbohydrate for them. Um, and there's all sorts of other organisms down there in the in the deep sea and in lots of other marine environments, in fact, on whale falls and... Um, and methane seeps where microbes are the, the absolute foundation of that community. And again, if we think about the insects, so we talked about Buchner a bit, um, there wouldn't be any aphids without symbiotic microbes. So when that symbiosis evolved, that opened up this whole new world of niches that have now been populated by insects and similar things have happened with insects that feed on blood. That wouldn't be possible because it's such a nutrient-poor um, food. So going back to the aphids in the Buchnera, the aphids, if I understand right, they, they have specialised cells because they've been co-evolving. So there's reciprocal evolution. So one evolves in response to the other evolving for so long that they have specialised cells in which these <clears throat> microbes live, right? In a, in a reduced form, is that? Yeah, so what's happened in, in aphids is that they have these special cells called bacteriocytes, which... Um, house lots and lots of these bacteria and they keep them in specific parts of the body in fact in a, what it's actually called an organ the bacteriome um, and these cells are specifically kind of passed down to the daughter the daughter aphids um, through vertical transmission of the symbionts it's an incredibly um, elaborate system for making sure that those aphids have these symbionts and the symbionts themselves like you mentioned um their genomes have degraded over evolutionary time, so they can't do lots of things, those bacteria. They've lost a lot of their basic functionality. They're completely dependent on the aphid. They're good for the certain bits of biochemistry that the aphid needs to make the amino acids, but they can't live on autonomously. They've lost that ability, so they're tied together forever now. So that, that was over a really long evolutionary period. And I imagine that today, with kind of human effects and, and, and the rapidly changing world that we're living in uh their bacteria and other microbes allow their hosts um to adapt really quickly to new environments yeah. right are there any examples of how that's when that's happened in sort of more recent times uh yeah that's a good question so there are there is actually one really nice recent example of where again an insect has um taken up a bacteria from the environment which has allowed it to adapt to that new challenge so um i'm thinking about this insect called the bean bug which is a, a pest species in agriculture. And there's some really nice experiments that have been done showing how it's been able to take up a bacterium from the soil, which is evolved resistance to uh, a pesticide. Um, and then that's allowed the bean bug to actually consume plants that have this pesticide on them without dying and become more of a pest. Um, so that's a nice example where, you know, a, a host has just sort of picked up a useful symbiont that's already evolved something that would take it much much longer to evolve itself that's really interesting so are there any examples of this in humans have we been able to colonize new niches or adapt to new environments based thanks to our microbiomes yeah so it's less less well known in humans but there is this one um sort of smoking gun uh 
finding that, that scientists have discovered fairly recently um, since we've been able to study the human microbiome, which is that it's possible that our gut bacteria have allowed us to digest milk norm- longer than we normally would. Um, so, you know, the ancestral state in humans is that we have lactase, which is an enzyme that's capable of breaking down um, lactose, the main sugar in milk. But that, that stops in um, after infancy when we stop breastfeeding. Um, but there's been some work done to show that um, we can actually compensate for this by having some bacteria called bifidobacteria in our gut that are capable of breaking down um, lactose and, and humans can therefore get energy from that. Um, but what's quite interesting is that we now also see that there are some uh, there are some genotypes of humans, so some people with a particular mutation in, in one of their genes that allows them to uh, produce lactase throughout adulthood. So these are called lactase persister. It's a lactase persistence uh, genotype. And interestingly, we don't see that they have much bifidobacteria. So that's quite interesting. It suggests that we sort of we were relying on these bifidobacteria for a while, um, but once we get this mutation and can break down lactose ourselves, um, the number of bifidobacteria goes down and we rely on them less. So it's it's kind of associational evidence, but it suggests that we have relied on them in part in the past to digest milk when we I think it's when we started farming and drinking milk from cows. That's such a fascinating example. So that hasn't been proved. That's just... So, yeah, so it's not been proved yet. I guess it's quite hard to prove what happened in evolutionary history. There's just this striking association between um, people who have this mutation um, in their in their lactase gene that allows them to produce it throughout life and the abundance of bifidobacteria that's consistent with that argument. Um, so, yeah, not proven, but suggestive. Oh, wow. Well, um Sarah, this has been so, so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.